Hey, lucky you. You're still listening to CKTZ, Cortez Community Radio, 89.5 FM and on the web at cortezradio.ca. This is DJ Artemisia inviting you to tune into Stone Soup for a folk and world. Welcome, neighbor, to Folk U Radio, Folk University's talk show, taking old school viral. I'm your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things. Today's episode is produced in collaboration with Cortez Currents, what's current on Cortez and beyond. What do you know? Today is a Folk University 101 show where we ponder how democracy goes wrong. With a high-stakes election in the U.S., a sudden B.C. election called amidst a pandemic, and numerous local elections across Canada, the role of democracy is on people's minds. What works? What doesn't? How is it that democracies can be used for personal gain, and it can seem so hard to change things even when they are so obviously wrong? Just a reminder, today's show is the opinions of those on the show and not necessarily those of Cortez Radio, its poor underpaid staff, its volunteers, or any other. So don't sue them. We are joined in studio today by Rex Weiler, where we are going to question the successes and failures of democracy and where we go from here. Rex Weiler is a Pulitzer Prize-nominated author, journalist, ecologist, co-founder of Greenpeace International, musician, educator, and immigrant. He's a favorite at Folk University, and I'm glad to welcome him here to Folk U Radio. Thank you, Rex. Thank you, Amanda. Pleasure to be here. I am hoping you can tell us uh, first a little bit more about your own experiences as a journalist, an ecologist, activist, immigrant, and how it shaped your thinking about democracy. Why, for instance, you would show up today to talk about this topic? Uh, because you asked me. <laughs> and, and I grew up as a people pleaser type. Um, so I said yes. Um, Although I, I must admit, many times I failed at the people-pleasing part. But um, I am an immigrant to, to Canada. I came here in 1971, so I have now lived here much, far more than half my life. Uh, my three sons were all born here, uh, and um, I've lived on Cortez since the 80s with a one-decade uh, break to Vancouver when our children were in school. Uh, 
Um, certainly my immigration to Canada sh- helped shape my ideas about democracy because I, you know, right away you, you can't help but compare Canadian democracy to U.S. democracy. And I know in Canada we, we like to uh, mock the U.S. for all of their failures. I, you know, we call them the United Mistakes of America or whatever, the United Snakes of America or whatever. Um, and it's a great fun and sport in Canada to mock the U.S. Um, but I, I wouldn't honestly say that democracy is working any better in Canada, really. And, you know, there's sort of the question like, oh, my God, what's going on in the United States? Isn't that horrible? Could it ever happen in Canada? Could it ever happen in Canada? It, do, do people forget we had 10 years of Stephen Harper? Are you kidding me? Who, who gutted our scientific infrastructure, gutted our environmental infrastructure, gutted our environmental laws, um, and, you know, really committed Canada to sort of the international cabal of corporate-sponsored governments. Uh, so, yes, and not only can happen in Canada, it has happened in Canada. And there's a lot of similarities. There are a lot of similarities between, certainly, U.S. so-called alleged democracy, Canadian alleged democracy, and European alleged democracy, and as well in the rest of the world. Um so that did shape my my ideas and 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 you know being a journalist the great thing about being a journalist is that you get to spend your whole life learning about stuff because that's your job is to is to learn bits and pieces about things so yeah that i mean that certainly shaped my ideas because it uh it compelled me to uh at least know something about how government works and and how decisions get made on a in a collective basis so let's jump right in to discussing how democracy goes wrong. This is not going to be difficult. <laughs> and it could take a long time if we talk about all the ways that democracy can go wrong. Um, now, you you mentioned, um, first of all, you mentioned personal gain. Like, no system is incorruptible. And I think that's very important for us. The the rich and powerful, or the powerful for any reason, uh, will typically will use power, even if they are well intentioned, uh, for their own benefit. I mean, how many people have had the experience of, you know, you have a little bit of power, you've got a job, and you know, part of your job is to is to hire, you know, somebody else to work. You know, aren't you know, if you're going to go to your friends, maybe to your family. That's nepotism, you know, that's, that's bias. It's, it's almost impossible and very rare that's, that somebody has power and doesn't abuse it a little bit, and even if they're well-intentioned, because most people, I'd say all people, have biases, so they, they tend to use power for the things that they think are the right. You, you talked earlier, you mentioned earlier about... You know, how, why can't we change things when they're, quote, obviously wrong? Well, what's obvious is different for each person. I mean, there's many things that are obviously wrong to me that might not be obviously wrong to my next-door neighbor. And my next-door neighbor may have ideas about what's obviously wrong that are very different from mine. So there's problem number one. Um, 
power corrupts. I mean, this goes back to uh, British Lord Acton, John Acton, historian and writer, and, and you know his famous quote: "Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely." So you know, going back to the days of of royalty and kings and queens, which we still have all over the world, uh, even remotely in Canada. Um, Absolute power corrupts, absolutely, and people can't help it. And even, you know, we there, if you go through history, you'll find many cases of well-meaning and even good uh, autocrats, but they're still autocrats, and they make mistakes, and they're biased, and, and they favor their friends and family, uh, and so forth. So um, one of the things that democracy attempts to do uh, is to mitigate the corruption of power by separating power out into um, essentially to the people is the idea. And then we get into, well, is it direct democracy? Can we vote for our laws? Or do we just get to vote for a representative who represents us? Or are we even further removed as we are in Canada? We get to vote for a representative who belongs to a party. And if that party wins then, or whichever party wins, then they get to make all the laws as they wish, pretty much unbeholden to the, to the people, even in their, even their own support. Um, so here's something, that, this is something that, that's very important, I think, to understand about any governmental forms when we talk about how decisions are made in any form, and it's often ignored, and that is scale. What scale are we talking about? What size of group of people are we talking about? There are certain forms of decision-making in, in our households that may be democratic, that may be autocratic, may be consensus. Um, it may be based on whoever's the best at arguing or demanding or being a bully. You never know. I mean, all of these things come into play, even in our own households. But there are certain patterns and ways that we learn to make decisions in a, in a healthy household, because we have a bunch of people involved, and some have more experience than others. We, we presume that parents certainly have more experience than children, but that doesn't necessarily mean the parents are always right. Uh, and yet, parents have a responsibility, and that's another important thing to consider, uh, not only do we have rights in a society, supposedly, um, but we also have responsibilities in a society, and the rights and the responsibilities kind of go along with each other. But scale is very important. So there are certain patterns of decision-making in a, in a household. There are certain patterns of decision-making in a neighborhood, there are certain patterns of decision-making in a community, such as Cortez Island, for example. Cortez Island's not a neighborhood. It's bigger than a neighborhood. A neighbor, neighborhood is, you know, people you can walk over and knock on their door and, and you know, ask them why they leave their lights on all night or whatever it is, you know, whatever you have to talk about or, you know, what are we going to do about our shared water system or uh, what should we do about our lake that has environmental issues and so forth and so on. So there are family scale, household scale, neighborhood scale, community scale. But Canada isn't a community, not even close. And, and this is 
I think one of the re- one of the biggest problems with Canada and the United States, both of them, is just they're too big to govern from any central place. And we often complain in the West that, well, Canada's run by Quebec and Ontario, and we're just an add-on that they kind of have to placate every once in a while. Uh, and um, otherwise, it's, uh, you know, the wealthy historical families and corporations uh, and bankers and influencers in Ottawa, in Ontario, and, and perhaps somewhat in Quebec, uh, deciding what happens in Canada. And here we are out on the, you know, perched on the edge of the rocks of, of the West Coast, and what do they care about us? Not much, un- unless they need our vote, which isn't really caring about us. It's wanting our vote, and those are different things. So um, so that's one way that democracy can go wrong is that the scale is wrong. And I think, and we, we try to mitigate that, for example, by having, well, we have municipal governments, we have uh, provincial governments, regional governments, uh, and so forth, as well as national government. But nevertheless, decisions that are made at the national level affect you and me in our homes, in our households, in our neighborhoods, in our communities. And we don't necessarily have uh, much control over how that goes. And sometimes the scale is all wrong. And I, I feel that's one of the one of the biggest obstacles in North America is the fact that the scale is wrong. You, you, can't, you can't govern an entire continent from Washington, D.C. and Ottawa. And um, that just, in fact, strengthens the insider little cabal of wealthy families and wealthy corporations uh, who get to make decisions and decide who is even going to run for office and who the leaders of the various uh, parties are. And so in many cases, when we go out to vote, it's a bit of a trick, isn't it? It's like, it's like the old trick that you use as a parent when you, you know, um, when you know your, your kid doesn't want to, you know your kid doesn't want to take a bath, so you might pose the question like, well, would you like to take your bath before dinner or after dinner? <laughs> it's the old parent's trick. And the kid thinks, oh, they get a decision. So they say, after dinner. Okay, so they've bought in unknowingly. <laughs> and, but our politicians do that too. Right, so we say, oh, well, are you going to vote conservative? Are you going to vote liberal? Are you going to vote NDP? Uh, or are you going to vote green? But wait a minute, I, I may have a completely different point of view. And it's even worse in the United States where it's Democrat and Republican. And this is another central problem with democracies, is this sort of, it, it creates this binary thinking that either you're a liberal, which might include in Canada an NDP liberal or a green liberal, but you're still a liberal progressive type, or you're a conservative type, Republican type, um, right-winger. You're right-wing or left-wing, this whole right-wing, left-wing dichotomy, which gets set up. But in reality, we know 
that decisions that involve ecosystems, communities, households, different people, gender preferences, gender ideas, community visions, uh, finance, money, uh, survival, power, and all of those things, those are extremely complex decisions. And the dichotomy of liberal or conservative is completely erroneous. It's fallacious. It's, it's not real. And yet we get sucked in, and what happens psychologically, it's just like asking your child, do you want to take your bath before dinner or after dinner? Like we get sucked in to thinking that we're making a choice. But if we, so we finally kick out Stephen Harper because, he, you know, those, those on the more progressive side, liberal side, think Stephen Harper's a jerk. And, of course, all the people on the right-wing side think that, that the liberals and Justin Trudeau are jerks, uh, but we start our minds fall into and get sucked into this idea that there are two sides, and that my side has got to be right all the time. So what happens is you create this this left wing progressive cabal of people who think their ideas are always right, and you have this right wing conservative cabal who think that all of their ideas are always right. And you really don't have what I would consider really serious, intelligent, adult conversation or debate about any of these issues because no one feels like they can give any ground. Now, if I'm sitting in my living room or your living room and I'm having a conversation with somebody who's way more conservative or way more liberal or way more one thing different from me, I could probably listen to their ideas, and I certainly try, and have really good conversations with somebody who's very conservative, politically conservative. And we might even find some common ground on certain liberal ideas about society versus conservative ideas about economics or international trade or whatever, and we might find some common ground. But in our political system, because of this binary thinking that, that emerges, is the common ground is obliterated. So this is another way that democracy can go wrong, go very, very wrong. Um, is, is this making sense? Um, you know, one of the things that I noticed when I came to Canada, the difference between the, the parliamentarian uh, version of democracy versus the American Republic idea, two-party system, is that in some ways Canada can be even less democratic than the United States. And, you know, let's take Stephen Harper as a really good example you know, he won, he won, allegedly, so-called, we say won, I'll put that in quotes, um, the, the, the Prime Minister Office of Canada with 36% of the vote. That's a little over a third of the vote. That's not a third of the people, that's a third of the vote. And the vote's a small percentage of the people, maybe 25%, 30%. So... He got around, you know, 15% or 
or 10% of the people actually voted for Harper. But he got 36% of the vote. And in the two subsequent elections in which he was reelected, he got a little more like 37.6 and 38.9 or something like that. Like he never got more than 40% of the vote and he ran the country for 10 years and he ran it with an iron fist like an autocrat, like a dictator and fired scientists and threw them out and, and, and uh, insisted that they not speak to the media and, and, and rolled back our environment, you know, decades of environmental progress with 35, 36% of the vote. So there's a way that democracy can go really wrong. And I'm not, I'm not, wouldn't be one to say that all of the conservative ideas are bad and wrong and evil. But Harper got pretty close to what I would call wicked and evil. And even if I might agree with some of the conservative policies at the time, and maybe they had some good ideas, but I think their main idea was, was to undermine ecology, undermine the environmental movement, undermine all ideas of, of um, liberal social justice, undermine science. To me, that's evil. That's, that's taking power and and using it entirely for the benefit of a very few people which were the wealthy and the and the banks and the corporations and uh harper was harper was serving his patrons who were the banks and the corporations and i don't know if you know about the international democratic union but that's a group of right wing governments all over the world and it was founded by by Mark, uh, Margaret Thatcher in the UK and President Bush and the, f- the former information minister of Franco Spain, who was known for assassinating uh, communists in, in Spain. So there's, and this organization still exists. It's called the IDU or the International Democratic Union. And this, this organization um, supports these right-wing governments like Harper or like Trump or like, uh, you know, fascist dictators in, in uh, Central America or in Spain or anywhere in the world. There's this little right-wing cabal funded and financed by the largest corporations in the world um, to support people like, like Stephen Harper. They have more power, and most people in Canada have not even heard of them. And they have more power over what happens in Canada than you or I do by getting to go out and vote. So there's another way that democracy can go very wrong is that, that, that uh, wealthy and powerful international or national Canadian groups, corporations and so forth, can influence what happens in government much more than you do or I do. And by the way, guess who's now the uh, international chairman of the International Democratic Union, the right-wing cabal of governments, Stephen Harper. They, got, they helped to get him elected. He served 10 years in here undermining our environmental laws, and he's now prancing around the world helping other right-wing dictators get elected. There's a way that democracy can go very wrong. He helped Modi get elected in India, and Modi in India is just like a cardboard cutout version of Stephen Harper undermining environmental laws, uh, taking away tribal rights in India, uh, converting 
protected forests and so forth into coal mines, uh, serving the coal mining companies and the large mining companies and large manufacturing. Just absolutely a right-wing corporate-serving prime minister of India, Modi, helped to get elected by the IDU and by Stephen Harper and by that gang. Okay, so there's there's many many ways we we've, we've already talked about that that uh, democracy can go wrong, but the sort of central theme here is that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and money has. Uh, there's, I think of it this way: there's democracy is no problem for the psychopaths and the sociopaths. Democracy does is not a big obstacle because they know how you know if you're willing to manipulate the system, you can manipulate any system, and the democratic system is manipulated all the time. And I wouldn't say you know I've been picking on the on the right wing uh, uh, regimes around the world, but it's not just the right wing regimes. Uh, the the liberal and progressive governments around the world also know how to manipulate the machine and manipulate democracy, um, and you know we know about gerrymandering, about dividing up the the representative regions in order to to favor one party or the or the other. I've been in Canada since 1971. Fifty years in Canada. Next year will be 50 years. I've heard virtually every national politician that ever ran for office say that they favored um, proportional representation. And not one of them, liberal, conservative, NDP, none of them have ever even promoted proportional representation once they get into office. Because the system the way it is is completely corrupt and it favors all of them because it keeps each little cabal in power. It, It NDP doesn't really want proportional representation. They'd get slaughtered. The Greens don't even really want proportional. The Greens are are weak enough that they still say they want proportional representation and and probably do. But certainly the liberals and conservatives do not want proportional representation. If there was proportional representation in Canada, the liberals and conservatives and the NDP would be virtually, their power would be slashed in half. Now, there are places that do have more proportional representation, and they have their own problems of, of ha- you know, what, one thing about a, a dictatorship, whether it's Stephen Harper's dictatorship or Louis Sixteenth, is at least you can make decisions. I mean, this is one of the advantages that China has is, you know, and they've, China has made some good decisions, and they've made some really selfish, brutal decisions, and you know, that cost a lot of people their lives and so forth. So um, oligarchs and, and dictators can, can wreak a lot of havoc, but they do have the, the advantage of being able to make quick decisions and making them stick. Whereas the more proportional representation you have, the harder it is to get things done because you have to negotiate. But Sweden has a fairly good uh, system of proportional representation, and they work it out. And they have, so, so their governments are typically alliances, and um, Sweden's rated very high as far as democracies that are actually democracies. And um, 
places like Norway and Iceland and Sweden that have more proportional representation are rated very high because you, you feel like when you go out and vote, if you vote green right now, what, you're helping the conservatives. If you vote NDP, you're helping the conservatives. And then they never want to admit that, but that's the truth because essentially you're taking, the, you're taking votes away from the liberals because you're, in many cases, not always. And I'm not saying you shouldn't vote green. That's fine. And vote NDP, vote your heart, yeah. But the system is rigged so that your vote's not going to count as much. And if we had more proportional representation, then if I, if I wanted to vote extreme right wing, okay, that's my opinion, I'm going to vote that way and my vote's going to somewhat count. And if I want to vote green or if I want to vote NDP, great. And my vote's actually going to count, and I'm going to have some representation in the parliament. And then whoever forms the government is going to have to make an alliance with enough of these groups to make it work. And, you know, that's why um, the countries like Norway and Sweden and Iceland and so forth uh, who have uh, a better um, representation are, are highly rated. There's the, the World Economic Forum... Um, is one of the groups that rates democracies. And, you know, they published a few year, a couple of years ago, they published a, a report called Democracy in Decline. And in this report, they, according to, to how they analyze democracies, which is electoral process and pluralism, we were talking about proportional representation, that's pluralism, civil liberties, real civil liberties, um, how the governments function, um, the extent of political participation, the political culture, and so forth. So a healthy democracy, they, they have these ways of measuring what they say is a healthy democracy. Anyway, in their report a few years ago, they said that 72 out of a little over 100 nations that they reviewed— 72 countries had declined in democratic values in the last decade. Declined. 72. Most of them. Two-thirds. And, um, and here's, one, here's part of the shocking thing, is that the decline was from 5.55 out of 10 to 5.52 out of 10. On average, all these democracies are at best mediocre Five out of ten is mediocre. That's a C in school. So actually, I'm pretty sure five out of ten is failing. Is failing in school. That's right. Five out of ten is failing in school. Um, so democracy's in a mess worldwide, and you know I've mentioned some of the things that can go wrong with democracy. I'm sure our listeners can think of a few more. Um, and we see what's going wrong with democracy in the United States right now. And this sort of um, uh, binary effect of democracy is, is in full, sad, dramatic, tragic force in the United States right now. And so, the, you know, you, you, and then what happens is you eventually, then you get into the conflict just builds until you have sort of violent confrontation from both sides and nobody can give an inch. So can we talk a little bit more about uh, the state of democracy in the U.S. and in Canada with these elections? Uh, I would say they're very different elections, um, but uh, 
one just being provincial here in the West Coast, and then this really highly uh, heated election in the U.S. that many of us feel a lot is at stake in, although you bring up really good points about why the world sort of hasn't remembered Harper, um, but can't get over talking about Trump. Yes, we're still living through the Trump era, but he's just doing some of the same things, it seems like, that that Harper did. So talk a little bit about what this means about what's happening with North American democracy. And um, I'm curious, especially about how how these kinds of democracies fail, what we've learned in history of examples of what it looks like when a democracy truly devolves, how, what does it devolve into? And are there examples of better ones or ways forward that don't just end in war or complete chaos or whatever is the thing that failure looks like? Well, I think chaos is always the wolf at the door forever. And I don't think there's any system that is going to guarantee the elimination of conflict and chaos. What we try to do historically, or what, we, what our ancestors tried to do, and what we are trying to do today, is create systems that make society as fair and reasonable as possible. I think that's what most people believe. Conservative, liberal, all of them. I think most people have a kind of sense of common decency. I mean, I find that with I mean, I've traveled around the world, I, and you know, in in my community, in my neighborhood, and in my experience, most people are decent, and will treat each other decently. Not everybody. Some people are angry, wounded, permanently pissed off, aggressive on both sides, by the way, of the political divides of the left-right version. Uh, People are angry, upset, wounded, and they can take that out on each other and on their neighbors. But I think for the most part, people would support what, what I think of as just common decency, knowing how to treat people. Your neighbor comes over to borrow something, eh, you try to help them out if you can. Or, you know, I'm, I remember years ago on Cortez when a, tr- a tree during a storm broke and fell on my roof and, and, and crashed on my roof. And, my you know, my neighbor was over there immediately, you know, in the middle of the night helping me put a tarp over my roof. And I remember when our when our son was uh, was sick and had to get evacuated out of off of Cortez in the middle of winter. Uh, this was years ago in the nineties, um, and you know there was a phone tree and people went up to the school. To, there, there was no helicopter landing pad at the time, and people went up to the school and shined their lights so the helicopter could land. And everybody was helping, and it didn't matter what your political position was. There was a, a a child in danger. There was a family that needed help, and everybody helped. And I think that's mostly what we have in this world. People have a sense of common decency. But there certainly is a minority. Some people are severely wounded psychopaths, sociopaths, 
just angry all the time and um, want revenge on somebody for whatever is hard about their life. And they go about making trouble and, and they don't care about the rules. They feel justified. They feel entitled. There's a, there's a, a minority of people who feel entitled to do and disrupt and say whatever they want and to create havoc. So this is what I'm saying about, you mentioned chaos, and I'm saying chaos is the wolf at the door all the time because whatever system we have of government, we don't have, we don't have any means of eliminating psychological wounds on a mass scale and making sure there's no psychopaths out there disrupting and it's way easier to cause disruption and we've seen this in our own community it's way easier to just cause chaos and and disruption than it is to get anything meaningful done so if you set out to get something meaningful done in any community build a school improve the roads improve the the community halls do any you know get better ferries whatever improve anything. It takes a lot of work. Get better housing, get more housing, protect the environment. Anything that you want to do is really hard. But to blow it all up is really easy. You know, and one or two people who are just angry and just just want to cause chaos can do so. You know, it's like it's like the blackberries, you know, they grow all year, they grow and grow and grow, and I go by with my clippers and snip, 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 you know. It's like it's easy to take something down. <laughs> it's really hard to build it up. But we cut down a tree, you know, with a you know, chainsaw, you know, for firewood, crash, you know. Well, that tree's been up there for 100 years growing, you know, turning sunlight into material and taking care of itself and sending roots down and getting nutrients, you know, for 100 years. It takes a lot of work to create something, and it's really easy to destroy it. So that is why chaos is always the wolf at the door. So um, what we're seeing in North America, and I think what we saw during the Harper era in Canada and now in the United States, I think it's just the normal process of democracy because if you get somebody who comes along and says, I'm just going to incite uh, violence and conflict and get the uh, men against the women and the whites against the blacks and the Muslims against the Hindus or whatever and create all this conflict and violence and, um, uh, you know, Whale Town versus Manson's Landing or whatever, you, you know, any way you want to divide up society and create conflict, it's easy and it's destructive. And Democracy doesn't have a mechanism to necessarily save you from that. So that's where it comes back really to human relations and building human relations. And I think that if, if you want to build strong, resilient communities, you can never sleep on that. You know, you have to have ways. You have to have uh, systems that help people learn to talk to each other and get along and to bring out the best angels the higher angels that most people have of common decency in helping each other and help that 10% or 8% or 2% or whatever it is of psychopaths and, and troublemakers and angry, wounded, sad people and help them.
help them get over it. And that's a never, I would say that's a never ending, you know, they say the, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance, and I think that's the eternal vigilance right there. The eternal vigilance uh, to, to make sure that the, that the best instincts, the higher angels of our nature, are manifest in our societies and not the lowest. But it's a continual struggle because it's easier to manifest chaos than it is to manifest anything that's complex, and everything that's good is complex. This just reminds me about why I love the idea of folk university so much. Um, And it's just this idea that we can practice being together as neighbors and practice sharing ideas. And I remember at a folk university talk hearing uh, Ashley Zarbatani was talking about Civics 101 last year. And she said that in the U.S., in the first election, Trump's first election, if you looked at conservative districts that had historically voted conservative, what was it that the ones who voted for Trump or strongly leaned towards Trump versus his, his conservative opponents, what was it that they all had in common? They were all missing community centers, halls, churches, whatever it was that would bring people together. And so the people it appeared who were most isolated and most separated from each other were most likely to give in to the message of, of bigotry and um, dissension that Trump was, was promoting. Uh, and that really stuck with me. And I think we're seeing the effects of this playing out in the U.S. and Canada. In the last election in Canada, we saw the same thing happening, but in rural communities across Canada, where they basically, a lot of rural people suggested that they did not feel like there was anyone voting with their interests, anyone running with their interests in mind. And so we saw extreme differences in how the rural Canada voted versus the rest of Canada. And I'm wondering if, like, is there hope for democracy in in communities like in countries like ours where we are getting so separated and isolated by our differences or is this a chicken and an egg scenario did we end up this way because our democracy has led us to feel more polarized or have we become <laughs> have we created it because we have become more polarized um both and more First of all, there is always hope, but I, I would like to emphasize that hope is not a strategy to, to make things better. Um, what actually makes things better is investing the time and energy uh, to do so. And f- the first place to invest the time and energy is in ourselves. I think that you know, I've talked, I, I've mentioned a few things about, you know, wounded, angry people. Well, all of us probably feel anger at some time and feel cheated and we didn't get what we deserved or somebody got more than we did or somebody else got a benefit we didn't get. Um, it takes some work on yourself 
to get over that stuff and to not be resent, not go through life being resentful for what you don't have. I mean, every as far as I'm concerned, everybody that lives here, everybody that lives really in North America, should be grateful, for, you know, that we're fortunate enough to live in a place where, you know, we have access to education, we have access to, to learning, and access to jobs, and and uh, you know, half decent, still clinging on to half decent environment. Uh, declining fast, of course, but um, we have so many opportunities here, and um, we should be grateful all the time. But it's hard to be grateful all the time. It's easy to be resentful, so that's that's one step. So, yeah, there is hope, but I repeat, hope is not the strategy. Uh, We have to come up with ways to actually uh, manifest these higher angels, as we talked about. I want to mention one thing about what happened four years ago in the United States. I'm going to lay some blame on the progressives, on the, on the um, Democrats and the, and the progressives in that election, because here's what I saw happening. As soon as that goofball um, got nominated or looked like he was going to get nominated— the liberals and the progressives couldn't shut up about him, about what a jerk he was. And that's all they talked about on Facebook, on television, on the radio. It was, it was this constant barrage. It was the tsunami. They repeated his name a million times. All you read about day in, day out was how much they hated him and what a jerk he was and what a sexist uh, he was uh, and what a fake he was and... and you know, there's one thing after another that accomplished two things. One thing it accomplished is it put his name in front of the public constantly. And, and I think the progressives and the liberals didn't realize this. But every time they open their mouths about him, they're promoting him. And that's one thing that it did. The second thing that it did is that his base, and the same for Stephen Harper here in Canada, his base was a kind of rural populist people who had many reasonable complaints about government and about the oppression of how they were supposed to think and act. And they kind of blamed, some of these people blamed a lot of that on the liberal progressive governments that they felt oppressed them. And, And... Many people, workers, working class people, rural, populist, working class people, felt that in the United States, the Democrats, and in Canada, the liberals, dispossessed them, left them behind. And the liberal mentality and the progressive mentality became very sort of intellectualized among a college-educated, really an elite, from the perspective of... Working class rural people, it looks, the, the, the progressive liberal viewpoint looks elitist, and quite frankly, sometimes is elitist, and they kind of left that working class um, contingent of the public, they left them behind. And I think through, if you go, if you go back historically in the 20s and 30s and 40s and, uh, and 50s, 
in the United States and in Canada, the liberal progressive political constituency were working people. And I think in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s, that began to shift to an intellectual constituency of college-educated people who, quite frankly, were entitled and privileged with privilege with education, privilege with growing up with, with resources and access to education and access to jobs, access to roles in the government. And so these kinds of resentments built up uh, in, in the sort of rural um, populist group. Now, I'm talking about the second thing that happened. I said, you know, when the progressives ragged on Trump for six months, the first thing they did was they put his name in front of the public all the time, every day, and hardly ever mentioned their candidate. And secondly, they fueled the resentment of this working class uh, populist population that had different ideas. They mocked them, and they fueled their anger. I think that the progressives in the United States in that last election four years ago elected Trump, or had a huge contribution in electing Trump, more of a contribution than Russia or Putin, because they didn't handle it properly. They didn't promote their own candidate. They spent the whole election ragging on this other person and saying what a jerk he was instead of promoting their candidate. Well, first of all, I mean, the Democrats nominated, not, not, you know, they, I think the Democrats nominated the wrong person. They not, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders was filling stadiums. Hillary Clinton could hardly fill up a ballroom, hotel ballroom, and I know that Hillary Clinton had many good ideas, and it would have been great to have a, have a woman president in the United States. It would have been fantastic. Um, but she wasn't the one that was going to appeal to people very easily. And they turned their back on their candidate that was filling football stadiums all over North America and uh, went with the insider. And that made them look even more elitist. And... Um, as much as it would have been great if uh, Hillary Clinton had been elected, and it would have been great to have, have a, a, a woman, and it would have been great not to have the current jerk, um, they didn't focus on their own candidate, and they didn't focus on why it would be a good idea to elect her and what the benefit would be for working-class people. What would the benefit be for rural people? What would the benefit be for people who have a little more conservative, family-based, kinds of social ideas. They didn't appeal to those people, and they didn't really appeal to their own constituency. So a lot of people in the middle ground in the United States drifted toward the Republican right-wing conservative position, and I somewhat blame the progressives. Does that make any sense, what I'm saying? Um, and it's all understandable, but you know, you got to be smarter than that. And, you know, I see kind of the same thing happening this time around, although I think they've wised up a little bit and, and it looks like they're going to be able to shoe in Biden. But again, they, they nominated the insider. 
and um, they had so many, so many other good choices. And um, so I think they've made some of the same mistakes. They're probably going to win. I think the Democrats are going to win in the United States this time. Um, the the polls are certainly suggesting that. But the polls were favoring Hillary Clinton, too. And in fact, New Yorker magazine, I saved this article in New York, Yorker magazine that basically talked about Hillary Clinton winning the election and what she was going to do and what her legacy was going to be. They went through a whole, this is New Yorker magazine, supposedly the most perceptive intelligentsia in, in America, writing about what the eight years of, of Hillary Clinton's regime was going to do and what she was going to do for America. And they just, you know, this was a month before the election, and they just got it absolutely dead wrong. And um, so I think what happened four years ago in the United States is more complex than, you know, just a, just a, a bunch of, of, of right-wing people got angry. They did get angry. And it's certainly a lot more than, and the Democrats are still going on about this, about, oh, Russia interfered with our election. Well, those of us who live in Canada would just laugh at that. Uh, oh, really? A foreign country interfered in your election. What a shocker. Well, newsflash, Americans, your country gets their fingers in every single election in the world and influences every election they can, and in some cases completely controls elections in Central America, and certainly tries to influence every election in Canada. And the Republicans in the United States had a huge influence in electing Stephen Harper, and um, participated with him, shared uh, consulting firms, um, sent their top consultants to Canada to consult with Stephen Harper, and teach them all their dirty tricks and voter suppression and all that. It's like the idea that we live in a democracy, first of all, I mean, I, I think we're naive if we actually believe we live in a democracy. Yeah, we get to go out and vote, but we live in an oligarchy. An oligarchy is a government of the few, a government of the, a few elites. And whether they're liberal elites or conservative elites, Democratic elites or Republican elites, right-wing, left-wing. In Europe, in North America, we live in a government of corporations and wealthy people and wealthy families and bankers. And, and they have more power over who's running our country and what the policies are going to be than you or I do by going to vote. So that's another way that democracy goes very, very wrong is that the powerful doesn't phase them. They know how to manipulate democracy. On that upbeat, <laughs> not particularly upbeat note, um, we I'm going to introduce a break um, so that Rex can drink water and catch a breath and so that you, neighbors, can call in with questions. You may email questions or call in to the radio station. You've been listening to Folky Radio's 101 show on CKTZ 89.5 FM. And Rex Weiler has been in the studio with us to deepen our understanding of democracy and how it goes wrong. If you have questions, you may call or email. The number here is 250-935-0200. Or you can 
email at the letter U at folku.ca. That's U at F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. So we have a few moment music break for you to call in. Thank you. 
the cradle of the best and of the worst. It's here they got the range and the machine.